Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Politics Band Podcast for April 16th, 2020. Welcome back, everybody. I hope that you are all having a uh, safe, illness-free, and hopefully still employed day. Uh, and if you cannot check off any of those boxes, I just hope you know that uh, those of us over here at the Politics Band Podcast, we are with you. And um, I'm hoping that Maybe today's podcast can, while not necessarily bringing a lot of cheery, good, you know, rosy colored information, um, I am hoping that um, I can provide perhaps some opportunity for additional research and to spark your interest and curiosity into some of the things going on out there in hopes that um, you can all make better, more informed decisions about the many things that have yet to come uh, in the future, no doubt, things that we have never even possibly thought of. I was kind of prompted to do today's podcast by a buddy of mine, and he was uh, asking me, he's like, you know, basically, he was hoping that uh, I could do some type of a, a podcast about more of a, a general perspective on what's going on and what my take on it was and kind of how in tune with the news I am about a lot of the different events that are taking place out there. So this is kind of an inspiration to deliver on that. And I've been thinking a lot about the message that I would want to give to friends and family about finances. Um, I'm not by any stretch of the imagination a poster child for uh, financial success. I do pretty well. I save. Um, I feel like I'm pretty responsible with my cash, but there, of course, is always more opportunity to be more frugal, to budget better, to plan better. And um, I'm making an effort virtually every day to really try and secure my finances for my family and for my future family. And as a result, I'm just the kind of person where I'm not necessarily afraid to talk money with, in, with people, um, but it is definitely not a subject that I bring up. Um, and even then, I tend to be rather guarded about my finances only because, you know, talking about money with people can elicit all sorts of, you know, feelings of jealousy and envy or just simply not quite understanding, um, you know, what it takes to, you know, to to achieve the level of success that I've achieved. And even then, I have to emphasize the fact that I still have an enormous amount of ladder climbing to go. Uh, before I get to a place where I think I'll, I'll feel morally secure. So I only preface that because I find it, I, I'm split on the kinds of advice, unsolicited, I might add, because of course, nobody's necessarily asking my opinion. I'm not a financial advisor. I've never pretended to be one on television. Um, but the extent of my experience is a combination of being self-taught, self-read, um, and maybe some mild instruction from, you know, uh, information that I've purchased over the years. Um, but I mean, I'm not coming into this being a complete novice. I started really um, the bulk of my experience trading cryptocurrencies back in 2017. And I really found the aspect of reading charts to be really fascinating. And the the data and information on the technology really sort of uh, drove a lot of excitement in the innovation within the cryptocurrency market. And it's been a real unfortunate 
circumstance that I've really soured on a lot of the technology and my faith in the ability for cryptocurrency to really revolutionize our system of money and currency and to potentially save an entire generation of savvy financial investors from what I fear to be, well, almost an unavoidable future at this point. So this podcast is sort of an attempt to make a very general case for all of us to not only change our financial habits, especially if we are in the position where we are not being responsible with our money. And how I would define being responsible is if you are operating financially under the impression that life six months from now is going to be exactly the way it was six months ago, um, you are probably going to set yourself up for a serious trap. And overall, right now, because of the situation with the coronavirus, I think that a lot of people have become more defensive in their financial handling uh, than they were even a few months ago. You know, we we don't see people running out and buying new cars. Um, real estate purchases have been a little bit more difficult, but not necessarily because people have just decided to pull out of the market. But there are some who have. But people are not running out to get big screen TVs or to you know, to splurge on um, all sorts of purchases. Even in my own household, we had uh, some some larger purchases that, you know, we put on hold uh, for the time being because it just didn't make sense to spend the money on something that, you know, we couldn't utilize in sort of our core, um, like different groupings of things that we try to, you know, put our money into those are things like energy security, you know, food, barterability, uh, shelter, you know, things of that nature. And of course, wealth preservation as well. So all of that kind of wrapped up basically is that I am not somebody who's in a position to where I feel comfortable giving unsolicited financial advice really to anyone else, because my perspective is not unique, but I would say my perspective is not very common. And I definitely have a more cynical perspective on the market in general. And I'm going to go over some of that with you today. And I want to start this entire segment this way. I'm starting to understand, and this is probably, again, a difficult thing to comprehend only because it's sort of detracts from our typical experience in life, your your common sense experience. When a crisis hits, and it could be a crisis of, it could be a natural disaster. You could use the current pandemic as as an example, a financial crisis, any kind of crisis, both, you know, something that is self-contained only to your household or something that consumes an entire nation. It's not the people who are smartest, It's not the people who are, you know, the strongest, and it may not even necessarily be the people who have the most capital that stand the greatest chance to survive these crises when they hit. But instead, the people, the businesses, the organizations, the governments, whomever it may be, it is the person who can 
adapt the fastest to the changes in reality that stands the greatest chance of coming out ahead. And a lot of this is a real challenge, and and especially when you look at it from the standpoint of human nature. People tend to operate with what is referred to as a normalcy bias, or or they normalize situations. And essentially what a normalcy bias is, is a tendency for people to take a situation that is extraordinary and to try and pretend or downplay that situation as it not being a big deal, that it's perfectly fine, or that it's you know a situation where things will quickly return to normal. And I can give you a good example. You know, if you're at your home and you were to hear gunshots outside of your home, it is a fairly typical reaction for people to think, well, it's probably just fireworks or well, it's probably nothing. It'll be okay. When in fact, there could potentially be danger. Now, this is a probably an experience. If you've lived in the inner city for any length of time, you've probably heard gunshots before. And depending on how common this sort of thing could happen, your response to it could very well be very different depending on, you know, between that and someone else who's never experienced it before. But we have a tendency to have a normalcy bias. I'll give you another example. We have a tendency to apply a normalcy bias, especially when our own experience has been that a particular set of circumstances have always turned out to be okay. Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans and Louisiana in particular is one really good example. This is a part of the country that has endured, you know, hurricanes all the time. Um, You know, people who had lived in New Orleans had dealt with hurricanes. You know, it was something that it was a fairly universal experience that everybody there had. And overall, you had a number of people that when Katrina was, you know, headed towards mainland and the news media, of course, were trying to warn everybody to get out of town. You had the government telling people to get out of town. People had, you know, a solid three days to evacuate. Some people legitimately couldn't get out of the city. I just want to acknowledge that. But what you saw were people who were like, oh man, I've been, I've, you know, I've heard this before. They tell us that hurricane is going to be a huge deal. And then it comes through. It's no big deal. It's going to be fine. I'm going to stay. Well, we all know how Katrina turned out and we all know the suffering that took place and the massive disaster that, you know, became of the situation when, and not even necessarily because of the hurricane, but because the levees in New Orleans broke and flooded a huge portion of the city. So, I mean, again, there's a lot of there's a lot of nuance to that circum to that situation that I'm not going to go into here. But I hope you you get the picture. And part of the normalcy bias also plays into our sense of security. One of the reasons why, and of course, I'll discuss this more into detail, in detail later. One of the reasons why the situation with the coronavirus is so unique is because it has the same effect on the population that we saw with September 11th, 2001. Everybody's risk profile has now changed, which is a serious problem because even if tomorrow the virus was to vanish off the face of the earth, 
even if the governments were to tell you that it's perfectly safe and everyone can go out and go to restaurants and you can visit your family and your friends, go to the parks, there's going to be some portion of the population, maybe large, maybe small, it's too early to tell, but you're going to have a segment of the population who will not return to life as they knew it prior to the the onset of this pandemic. These are people who are still not going to go out to crowded restaurants. They're not going to go to sporting events. They're not going to, you know, potentially leave the house as much as they used to. Maybe they don't go to the grocery store anymore. Maybe they take advantage of Instacart delivery services or, you know, having a lot more food brought to them as opposed to risking going out. Everybody's risk profile has changed. The same thing happened with 2001. There was an interesting thing that changed with respect to people's attitudes who fly. Because prior to September 11th, the the concept that anybody would intentionally suicide themselves by driving an airplane into a ta- into a an, into a tall building and that that concept never crossed anybody's mind so if you're a passenger on an airplane especially when you think about you know like the airplane hijackings that started taking place in the 80s and the 90s the policy always was to cooperate with the hijackers you know, they take hostages and they want money or they want you know, people released from prison. It's usually terrorists that would engage in this behavior. But, you know, their intent was never to, to, to die. Their intent always was to get away with whatever crime it was they were trying to commit. That all changed on September, September 11th. Suddenly, after that, if someone started getting rowdy in an airplane previously to September 11th, There was no action taken by the passengers. And in fact, even on September 11th, you know, two of the, you know, you you had, uh, you know, there were four planes total and uh, only one of those planes did you actually have passengers that actually fought back. And that was only after they realized that the other planes had been driven into buildings. But the other flights, people had no idea what was going on. And even after once the flights were taken over, there must not have been any resistance. Now, after that, Once the public became aware that this was a possibility, any time now that you ever hear about somebody getting unruly on an airplane, the passengers, I mean, they intervene immediately. Passengers are subduing these people. They're helping the airline staff and crew, you know, get these people either in zip ties and, you know, incapacitated or what have you. But the passengers don't take smack from anybody anymore on an airplane. If you get out of line on an airplane, there's going to be somebody in the in, among those passengers that is going to take you out or is going to help the airplane staff and crew take you out. That's because everyone's risk profile changed. Suddenly something that never occurred to people as being a possibility was now something that could happen because it had already happened. The same is being going to be seen with this pandemic. Once people understand that there is a possibility of an animal to human virus that could be transmitted and it could spread across the planet. And even today on April 16th, we have 2 million, 100 and was it 78,000? Let me refresh. Yeah. 
2,178,149 cases worldwide. There have been 145,000 deaths. And here in the U.S., we have about 675,000 infected people and about 32,000 deaths. And I've been struggling with people within my circle, trying to educate them somewhat passively because, again, people get their information from a variety of sources and everybody's adjustment period, where the, the, the period of time that it takes for people to adjust to a new reality, everybody's adjustment period is, a diff, is different. No two people will adjust at the same pace. I'm happy that I was able to adjust to the new reality a lot faster than some of the people in my circle because it put me in a position to help them, to to guide them, to educate them, and to do what I could to ensure that people that were close to me were as well prepared as they possibly could be. Not everybody took my advice. Not everybody has heeded my warnings. That's okay. Because at the end of the day, I'm going to do what I feel is right. You know, I've had, I had people that, <laughs> that straight up were like, Hey man, don't, you know, we really need you to stop fear mongering about this virus situation. And then two months later, they were basically saying the same things that I was saying. And it's just, it just takes time for some people to adjust. The purpose of the discussion today is to help you understand the reason why being quicker to re not so much react, but to align yourself with the reality around you is so very important. I mean, you have to think back. Well, I mean, one of the hardest things dealing with the coronavirus to touch on this briefly is the fact that it was an exponentially increasing function. And as human beings, we, we really only understand things that, operate in a linear fashion. We only understand straight lines. We do not understand exponential growth that well because typically with exponential growth, 90% of the move happens in the last 10% of the time period. And it's hard because we've had a lot of people who are, you know, there was people sounding the alarms, they were trying to get awareness and they were trying to educate the public in it. And all you could hear across all, especially across a lot of the conservative voices that were out there, was how this wasn't a problem, how this was not as severe as the flu. And we've seen the goalpost move as time has gone on. First, it was, well, nobody in the U.S. has died from this, to, well, the deaths are, you know, relatively minor and localized only to one or two areas in the country to, well, it hasn't killed as many people as the flu has to now. This now the story is, well, they're reporting the deaths in, you know, in a way that's that's um, essentially dishonest and it it exaggerate exaggerates. Oh, it's it's late here, folks. Um, it exaggerates the death count because people don't think that it is accurate to report that someone has died from the coronavirus if they had some other 
underlying complication like heart disease or cancer or diabetes or obesity, high blood pressure, hypertension, things like that. That doesn't make any sense to me because to me, that is just dishonest intellectually from a standpoint of data collection. And I'll give you a couple brief examples. Like whenever I'm discussing guns and gun ownership, which is turning into a much more fascinating topic now that a lot of the you know, radical progressives in California are suddenly discovering all these gun laws that they didn't know existed. Um, if you have not followed, if you have not followed any of those stories, go look them up. I don't want to rob you of the jaw dropping, like belly laughing that you will get from those stories. People who had absolutely no clue that you had a 10 day waiting period or that you had to get a background check to get a gun. I mean, the most basic things that every gun owner in America is aware of. So you need to research that. It's really worth your time because we're going to see some interesting shifts on the Second Amendment, I think, in the months and years to come. So the reporting, for instance, when I talk guns with people, usually the subject of Great Britain comes up because guns are illegal in the UK, except for a very few narrow circumstances. Well, what people will say is, well, the homicide rate in the UK is lower and certainly gun-related deaths are lower. Well, of course they are because there's you know relatively no guns there. But the UK only reports homicides if the police investigation led to a successful prosecution. So if someone murders somebody else in Great Britain, the case is investigated and it's not solved. That is not counted as a homicide with how Britain reports their homicide data. Now, if that were the case, to give you some context, if that were the case in the United States, then the city of Chicago would have 75% fewer annual homicides than they do now because only about 25% of all of Chicago's homicide cases get solved. And I mean, let's be honest. I mean, Chicago has a lot of shootings. They used to be number one for a while. They've since been toppled by other cities, but it's still pretty bad. So reporting data in an honest way can really change the perception of what is going on around you. Because here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen, if you were to report 75 fewer homicides in the city of Chicago, it does not change the fact that people are still being killed in the city of Chicago. Those people are still dying. But instead of the public being educated as to the real reason why, which is the fact that they were murdered, they did not, you know, in the United States, basically, if it's, if it's considered a homicide, if you did not die of natural causes. So if you didn't die of natural causes, like, you fell down the stairs. Okay, that's that's a homicide. So not all homicides are murder. So it is important to understand that. But the point being that I am having a hard time wrapping my head around this notion that if you have a patient that has heart disease and emphysema and they contract the coronavirus and they die as a result of the virus, 
I don't understand why the death certificate should have cause of death being heart disease and emphysema. And either, you know, maybe there's a mention of complications by the coronavirus, but, but we're not supposed to count these people. This is completely, totally dishonest. And that type of reporting and that type of data is critical for us to understand what is going on around us. And that theme is going to kind of permeate as we go through this discussion today. And I hope, and I mean, I, I apologize that this is going to be kind of a long podcast, but it's important to understand that this information, you can't get it in a 30 second soundbite. You know, from a financial standpoint, you know, I have been deep in understanding these markets, understanding these financial instruments and assets for at least, at least the last year. And I mean, I would say certainly since probably, well, I mean, even so about, say, June of last year, I'm consuming this information on almost a daily basis. And I only say that because I want you to understand the level of commitment that it takes to really fundamentally understand this stuff. So you got to give yourself time. You have to do your homework. You know, you can't take what I'm telling you as gospel, because I'm here to tell you that despite the fact that I have done everything that I can to really understand this stuff, the financial world that we live in is vast, it's complicated, and it doesn't always make a lot of sense. And of course, it's all by design, you know, much like our legal system, where the aspects of the law really are not that complicated. What's complicated is the legal process. And that's why you need an attorney. You know, attorneys are not necessarily just, they're not like certified storytellers. They're not necessarily the most intelligent people, they're, but they're people who are trained on the process of navigating the legal system, uh, which is why we often need financial experts and tax experts and all these people because they understand the process. Like, you know, I have a guy who handles my taxes because he knows the law and he knows the process way better than I do. And it's much more efficient for me to pay him to handle my taxes than it would be for me to do it myself and also risk making massive mistakes. So I just want everyone to understand this is a very broad overview of our problems. And let's let's get into it because I know I've kind of delayed this long enough. Where where to begin? I need I guess the best place to begin is I need everybody who is listening. I want you to kind of engage in an exercise with me. And that is, I need you to use your imagination. I need you to imagine living in a world that is different than the one that you're in now. Now, I, I can't give you an exact description. I can't paint the picture for you. But I simply want you to be open to the fact that things could be very different six months from now, a year from now. The notion that life is going to, quote unquote, return to normal is, again, simply part of that normalcy bias. And by 
opening yourself up to the fact that things can be very different. This will help you get into the habit of not rejecting information that is given to you and instead allow you to consider it, to ponder it, and to spend the time researching it to determine whether or not it is something that actually could be a potential risk or threat to you or your family. And that's my whole approach with this. You know, I'm not looking at this situation and thinking to myself like, Ooh, how can I make more money? Certainly turning it into a financial opportunity would be fantastic, but I am 100% defensive right now. And really I have been for probably about the last seven years of my life. I've really tried to switch into this mode of how do I protect all of the things that I've worked so hard for my my life's work so far. And part of that is accepting the fact that we could very well be rapidly entering a world that we do not recognize. And as proof of this being possible, we need to consider things such as the coronavirus. The fact that a year ago, six months ago, the notion that we would all be sheltering in place in our homes, that we would have unprecedented economic disruption. I mean, we are facing a calamity that will eventually dwarf the Great Depression. That's not hyperbole. I'm not exaggerating. I mean, factually, we are going to see unemployment, income loss, deflation of asset prices, you're going to see the economy come down in a way that has not been seen since the Great Depression. And unfortunately, because of the enormous, like incredible Hulk size intervention from the Federal Reserve, which is pretty much the most powerful bank in the world, um, the situation is going to be drawn out. And it is going to be infinitely worse than if we would have just allowed the free markets to function, allowed these businesses to fail, allowed these banks to fail, which would mean job loss and loss of. I mean, it would be it would be awful. It would be painful. But this is the way capitalism is supposed to work. Capitalism is supposed to punish people who make bad business and investment decisions by them going out of business. But instead, we are breaking the rules of economics by essentially allowing the Federal Reserve to be the helicopter parent of American business and swoop in and essentially turn the United States into a country of zombie corporations. Corporations that are not quite dead, but not quite alive. And this isn't something that happened overnight. I, and I, I guess that's a good other area to start from here because this is not something that happened with the coronavirus. So, and I really need you to listen to me on this. The coronavirus did not cause the economic downturn. Now, I, I, know, I, know, I know how that sounds, all right? 
The coronavirus was simply the catalyst that started the rock slide, started the avalanche. It was the snowball that started the, the avalanche. It was the first pebble kicked over that started the rock slide. I'm going to attempt to walk you through a few things that will demonstrate that we have, were having problems well before January and February of 2020. What the coronavirus did was simply accelerated the deterioration that was already starting to form within the financial system. That's why it's been happening at a rapid, unprecedented rate. But ladies and gentlemen, make no mistake, if the coronavirus had never come across our path, something else would have caused this calamity. Maybe it would have been a bank failure. You know, it could, you know, there's any number of different possibilities because the financial system is so heavily interconnected. And there are so many financial instruments that allow financial institutions banks, hedge funds to engage in leverage betting more or less where you're basically able to, you know, compound your debt, you know, like leveraging in a good, easy example is if you bought a house on credit and then your house say developed a hundred thousand dollars in equity. Well, you leverage that, that housing credit by taking out a home equity loan. So let's say you took out a home equity loan of $50,000 and then you bought Bitcoin with that $50,000. So leveraging basically allowed you to take home equity that was bought on credit and then take a home equity loan, which was credit borrowed against the equity on your home and then buy Bitcoin, which is, you know, essentially... An, an equity itself, an asset. <clears throat> so you can understand where the trouble you could get into might come from if your Bitcoin investment, say, lost 50% of its value over the course of a single week, like happened recently, where Bitcoin went from approximately $10,000 all the way down to about 5500 Well, now you've just lost 50% of the home equity loan that you're still making payments on. The home equity loan that was made possible by the mortgage that you're also making payments on. So if, you're, if your leveraged bet fails, like let's say you lose everything, well, that money's gone now, but you still owe on that debt. Well, you're paying for debt that you get zero value from. And that is just a simple example of some of the derivative bets that these financial institutions are currently engaged in. And these bets, because they are on leverage, means that they don't have to swing 50% or 60% or 80% in order for them to start to unravel. The market may only have to fall by 20 to 25% in some cases for these leveraged bets to suddenly, you know, basically sort of spiral into a massive calamity. So it's important to understand that there is an enormous amount of debt that's out there and our entire economy is debt-based. 
And as a result of it being debt-based, the only way for the economy to continue to grow is by making it easier for you to take on more debt. So, I mean, this is the game that is played. The financial institutions, the Federal Reserve, the United States government, everybody is united in one simple goal, and that is to continue to make it easier and easier for American citizens to accumulate as much debt as humanly possible. Because the more debt you accumulate, the more currency that is created in the market. It's interesting if you think about it. When you issue credit, currency is created. And then when you pay off debt, that currency is destroyed. You know, if, if I'm going to loan someone money, in theory, I have to have the full amount. If I want to loan my buddy $100, well, I have to have that $100 to loan, but in the United States banking system, they have what's called fractional reserve lending. And what this means is, is that, for example, for every $10 of actual currency that you have in your possession, you can loan out $100. So suddenly, if I was a United States bank and I had a $100 bill, well, now I could loan out $1,000. And the best part is I get paid interest on that $1,000, but I only have to have a $10 bill in my hand. That's essentially how the banking system works. I know it's crazy. So if you're out there thinking that banks are loaning 100% of the assets that they own and that's all they can loan, I'm here to tell you that they can't do that. Now, that paints a pretty scary picture, right? Because if you're a bank and you can and you can loan out 10 times your actual reserves that you have in hand. Well, what happens when that money doesn't get paid back? You can understand how the impending mortgage crisis that we are facing is going to materialize when the governments basically say, hey, listen, you can't evict people from their homes if they're renting. And hey, banks, you can't foreclose on people if they are not paying their mortgage. Well, what's the incentive to keep paying? If you don't have any scruples and you're not concerned about your credit and you really want to try and test the system, you'll have people like what I've seen out in the news engage in rent strikes because who's going to, you know, who's ultimately on the hook? The landlord is. So if you can't get evicted from a home and you just don't feel like paying your rent because you think that it's unfair that the landlord keeps getting paid while maybe you know, you've had to take a pay cut or maybe you've lost your job. Well, someone has to pay that mortgage. So, you know, right now we're facing the possibility that up to 30% of all American mortgage holders may not be able to pay their mortgages. 30%. Now, in 2008 and 2009, during the great financial crisis of that time period, the total amount of people in the United States that were not able to service their mortgages actually topped out at 10%. So I hope you can appreciate that the projections of 30% is three times higher than what we had in 2008. So there is a massive banking crisis that is looming and the, virtually every door has a scary monster behind it. But let's start 
kind of back in September, because this is when things really began to unravel. And the whole purpose of me discussing this portion is to essentially show you that we were having cracks in the financial system foundation well before the coronavirus even materialized. In September, there was a crisis in what is known as the repo market. And in September, the repo market saw a dramatic spike in interest rates. And what this did was it threatened to essentially cause a credit freeze within that market. Now, what is the repo market? It's also known as the repurchase agreement market. This is from Investopedia. A repurchase agreement or repo is a form of short-term borrowing for dealers in government securities. So think U.S. Treasuries, U.S. US Treasury bonds, which is just government debt. In the case of a repo, a dealer sells government securities to investors, usually on an overnight basis, and then buys them back the following day at a slightly higher price. That small difference in price is the implicit overnight interest rate, and repos are typically used to raise short-term capital. They are also a common tool of central bank open market operations. Now, the repo market is not a simple instrument, and I'm not going to do a massive amount of education on this market. We still don't fully understand exactly what took place in September, but essentially what happened was that the interest rate within the repo market now, and so what you basically have a bunch of central banks and uh, like hedge funds and, you know, through third parties that will take U.S. treasuries, which is their collateral, and they will use, they will basically sell those treasuries to central banks. Those banks will then give the original holder of the treasury cash. So, you know, if I'm a hedge fund or if I'm a central or if I'm a banking institution or whatever, and I've got treasuries and I need, I need, I need cold, hard cash. And I've got a bunch of treasuries. Maybe I got 30 year bonds or 10 year bonds or five year bonds, whatever. And so I can exchange those bonds as collateral for cash. And then I can go and do whatever I need to do with that cash. And this is, this is a market that is constantly used all the time. Now, the thing that they don't mention is, is that, you know, it, it's supposed to be implicit that these are overnight loans, but a lot of times these loans are rolled over. So they're continuously holding on to the cash as the price of their treasuries continues to go up and up and up. In September, the interest rate for essentially for treasuries within the repo market, the interest rates skyrocketed from around 2% all the way up to about 8 to 10%. It was a dramatic, dramatic increase. And it, what happened was, in theory, is for whatever reason, suddenly there was distrust within the system. Either there was not enough cash available such as central banks just didn't have enough cash on hand. And it's a supply and demand situation. So if I'm a central bank and I don't have a lot of cash, and somebody comes in and says, hey, listen, I would like to exchange this U.S. Treasury for this cash that you have. Well, if I'm reluctant to give this cash away because I don't have very much, I'm going to charge you a higher interest rate. Why? Because it's a risk. 
And so I want to get a good return on my risk. Now, the other flip side of that, not quite as likely, though, is that there could have been some lack of faith in the U.S. Treasuries as good collateral. Now, this is probably not the case. But in 2008, the repo market did actually freeze for a period of time. And the reason why it froze is because at that time, in addition to U.S. Treasuries, another form of collateral was used, which was mortgage-backed securities. Now, essentially, mortgage-backed securities are mortgages that are basically packaged together and sold as a security. And a security is something that you buy with the expectation of it being worth more later. And there's some other, you know, like payouts and fees and stuff like that, that people who own MBSs get. And I don't, again, I'm not going to get too deep into how that instrument works. But if you're familiar with 2008, you will recall that mortgage-backed securities suddenly became very, very toxic because a lot of the loans that were bundled into those MBSs were subprime, meaning that they were loans where people had lower credit scores than what is typically acceptable for most standard loans, and it came with a special interest rate, well, those subprimes started to default on their mortgages. People were not paying them. Now, a lot of that was due to the fact that people lost their jobs and there was economic calamity and all that sorts, but suddenly MBSs became toxic assets. No one really knew what they were worth because they, there was all this market distortion by the fact that the credit rating agencies had labeled almost all of these MBSs as AAA, which is the highest rating that you can give them. When in fact, they were, they were just trash. So what happened was, is all of a sudden the banks were like, whoa, we don't want these mortgage-backed securities as collateral because no one wanted to hold the bag if suddenly it turned to be a, a, a bag of excrement. So nobody was taking MBSs anymore. So what did that do? Well, suddenly the amount of collateral in the system shrank dramatically. There was a collateral crisis that took place in 2008. The repo market froze because there was no collateral available because they had all these mortgage-backed securities that they couldn't use to get cash because they were considered to be potentially worthless. So all they had were treasury bonds. Well, the amount of treasury bonds that were in circulation was not nearly enough to satisfy the requirements for cash. So there was a collateral crisis that took place. So I only mentioned that because there's always the possibility of that being the case. But the bottom line was there was some type of a liquidity crisis that was taking place in the banking system. The banks most likely, this the most likely scenario is the banks didn't have money. So I'm going to go to Market, uh, the Market Insider. This is on uh, businessinsider.com. And this is a headline. This is from December 9th, 2019. And the headline is, The Fed's recent repo crisis was the fault of big banks and hedge funds new study finds. Now, before I get into this, there's another piece that I'm going to just, I want to I touch on. The manufacturing sector in 2019 was in serious trouble. This was one of the first major alarm bells that the economy was on its way down. In addition to that, the retail apocalypse 
was another sign that the economy was on its way down. Over, I don't have the, the exact numbers, but over 9,000 retail locations closed in 2019. So we had the greatest economy ever, but yet we had these massive, massive retail store closures where all of this commercial real estate was just sitting empty because all of these retailers were going out of business and going bankrupt. If everybody's spending, if the economy is so good, why are all these businesses going bust? Well, some of it was a lack of innovation. Some of it was competition from online retailers like Amazon. But you can't buy everything on Amazon. People are still wanting to go out to the malls and shop. I don't know why, but they do. So manufacturing was another area that was showing real serious weakness. And I remember having these discussions with with people that I know because there was this epic confusion around the steel mill situation because right around January of 2019, you know, the steel mills were doing so well because the president of the United States slapped tariffs on foreign steel, even though the United States steel industry had like 70% of the domestic market. Does that sound like a business that's ready to, does that sound like an industry ready to go out of business when you get 70% of the market share? So they were hiring all these people, but all of a sudden, like the steel mills, as, as soon as they were like roaring back to life and they were hiring all these people, they're just massive layoffs and they're, they're shutting down plants. Well, why was that? Well, because all the manufacturing demand dried up. There was a brief period of time where there was a huge demand for U.S. steel but car sales were on their way down. We were seeing demand for automobiles starting to plummet. And as a result, the manufacturing sector was starting to shrink and contract. And I'll give you a good indicator, which is trucking companies. <clears throat> because if trucking companies aren't doing well, that means people are not buying goods. If they're not buying goods because obviously the economy is not doing well. Here's an article from Transport Topics. This is from uh, ttnews.com. This is, the date is September 5th, 2019. Headline, 2019 trucking company closures so far have doubled all of 2018. It says more trucking firms have shut down during the first six months of 2019 than in all of 2018, a result of a softer freight market and broader effects of tariffs on imported goods, a freight market expert said. Tariffs are terrible taxes, which, yes, is absolutely true. So, I mean, the introduction of tariffs by the president of the United States was, again, another catalyst. Essentially, you created these artificial barriers. And because tariffs have unpredictable results, because, of course, boycotts, as, a, as an old friend of mine said, boycotts work in both directions. And so when we put tariffs on China, they put tariffs on us. So in this article, it says in the first half of 2019, 640 freight companies closed their doors. On average, these companies each had 30 drivers, resulting in 20,075 trucks being pulled off the road compared to 2018 when freight was booming. During the first half of that year, uh, 175 companies closed, each averaging about nine drivers, taking 1,550 trucks off the road. For all of 2018, 310 trucking companies closed. 
quote, it's happening because costs went up last year as pricing power rose. Noting that while spot prices have dropped dramatically this year, costs such as driver pay and expansion-related expenses have largely stayed at 2018 levels. If your costs don't come down, your pricing does, you become unprofitable, and then you go out of business. So we were seeing all of these massive closures of retail companies, manufacturer sector contracting, trucking companies closing. This was all happening. As you can see, this was September 5th. This was before the the repo crisis. I think that took place... Uh, I want to say maybe the 27th of September, but I'm I'm probably getting that date wrong. Let's go back to the repo crisis. Fed's recent repo crisis was the fault of big banks and hedge funds, says a new study. September's repo rate spike was driven by big banks and hedge funds. The Bank for International Settlements wrote in a report that was released on Sunday. Now, this, again, is a December 19th or December 9th, sorry, 2019 article. September's repo rate crisis was more than just a one-off blunder, and big banks and hedge funds exacerbated the problems as a new study. The overnight lending market relies heavily on four major U.S. banks and their free cash, but liquidity issues among the institutions allowed the lending rates to spike to occur. The big banks' holdings grew more concentrated in U.S. Treasury bills in recent months, crippling their ability to supply funding at short notice. So the banks were already taking on a large amount of U.S. treasuries. That's essentially what the article is saying. So they didn't have any cash. Hedge funds may have also contributed to the rate spike by boosting demand for treasury repos. Money market funds have boosted their lending to hedge funds since 2017, often using banks as sponsors for the trades. Hedge funds increasingly use the repurchase agreements to fund arbitrage trades, leaving less cash on the table. So, an arbitrage trade essentially is where the price of a particular commodity, let's say apples, um, has a, 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 a sizable spread in a couple of different exchanges. So at exchange A, an apple is being sold potentially for $5. And at exchange B, you can buy an apple for, say, $3.50. So you have a profit of $1.50 if you buy from exchange B and you sell at exchange A. So the hedge funds were trying to accumulate cash in order to take advantage of these trades, which left less cash on the table for lenders. Uh, The September 17th, okay, so it wasn't the 27th, it was the 17th. The September 17th rate spike led several analysts to worry about the Federal Reserve had lost control of the crucial metrics. So when you hear about the federal, the, the, the Fed Reserve fund rate, it's an overnight lending rate. So I'll, I'll briefly give you a kind of a laydown of, of the repo market. The Federal Reserve has what they call the discount window. And the discount window is a repurchase window that you could go to and exchange your U.S. Treasuries for cash. But... The discount window was kind of like the financial equivalent of the walk of shame because the big banks, they all lend to each other within the repo market. It operates completely independently of the Federal Reserve, but the Federal Reserve sets an overnight interest rate. And the idea is essentially that because they offer overnight lending at a particular rate, that the other banks will lower their rates at or around the Fed funds rate in order to stay competitive. 
Because if the other banks got, if their interest rates got too high, someone would just go to the discount window and get it for less. So it's it's kind of like a it's kind of like a gas station pricing structure, right? You know, gas stations, they all compete with each other within the same relative area with their prices. If one person lowers theirs a little bit, then other gas stations might follow suit and vice versa. Well, you know, let's say there's one gas station that's a little bit farther down the road than all the other ones. Well, maybe if the difference in gas is five cents or 10 cents, maybe you're going to take the convenience of getting gas a little bit closer to home. But if the difference was a dollar a gallon, well, you're going to make the little extra trip down to the gas station out in the middle of nowhere to fuel up. That's the Fed discount window, except if you go to the discount window, typically that's because no one else will lend to you. So it was a way to sort of provide an incentive for banks to not get in such bad shape that no one would lend to them because the minute you went to the discount window, you suddenly had like the scarlet letter around your neck because everybody else in the banking industry is like, whoa, why did you go to the discount window, bro? Why won't anybody else give you money? (laughs) So that's essentially how it was supposed to work. Now, the difference is, is now everybody is going to the discount window because the Fed is just, you know, giving away a, Because the Fed will take all the toxic assets now that no one else will take. So amongst U.S. Treasuries, the Federal Reserve also started taking mortgage-backed securities. So the banks took the opportunity to offload all of these toxic mortgage-backed securities onto onto the Federal Reserve and get cash for it. Now, what's been happening, of course, is that the Federal Reserve has offered like 14-day repo periods and now one-month repo periods. So now the overnight lending thing is not even, you don't even have to do overnight lending. Now you can, instead of pretending like you're getting it overnight and just rolling it over day after day after day, now you can do it for 14 days or a month. And meanwhile, the Federal Reserve holds these toxic assets on its balance sheet. It's a, it's a mess. It's a serious mess. So all this article basically is denoting is, is that, of course, big banks and hedge funds were to blame for the repo crisis. Now, here's the problem. The problem is we don't know which banks or which hedge funds are the problem because the reporting requirements for the Federal Reserve make it so that they don't actually have to tell us until two years after the fact. So if, for instance, you banked at J.P. Morgan Chase, which some of you out there probably do, if J.P. Morgan Chase was essentially driving up interest rates within the repo market because they didn't have any cash, because they were, you know, out of cash, isn't that something you would like to know? I mean, if you bank at J.P. Morgan Chase, wouldn't you want to know if your bank doesn't have any fucking money? Say that's kind of why this is becoming a concern. Because what is happening is these banks are engaging in riskier and riskier bets, and they are doing so while being able to hold fewer and fewer reserves at a time right now 
where the economy is on life support. The banks were pretending like the markets were just going to grow to the sky. And why shouldn't they? Because they know they're too big to fail. Because the government and the Federal Reserve will step in and save them. This is just the tip of the iceberg. And I mean, I know that we're going past an hour here. So thank you very much if you are still with me. And I really wish I could bring this information to you in a more concise way. But I, I digress. I want it. Let's keep going. I want to keep going with this because this is crucially important information. You need to understand this because if you do not, you are going to make some very, very bad assumptions about what is happening in the economy. The most important takeaway that you can take from the repo crisis is this. There was a liquidity crisis within the central banking system. And the Federal Reserve stepped in and essentially was creating money out of thin air and giving it in exchange for U.S. Treasuries as collateral. The, U, the Federal Reserve is not a bank. They don't have their own money. The Federal Reserve literally types in numbers into an account. They create money from nothing. I really need you to understand this. The Federal Reserve does not have money. They make money out of nothing. It's no different than you having a printer in your home Hey, I got to pay the electric bill. It's $500 this month. It's going to crush us. Uh, going to go ahead and just print that cash. They print the money out and then they pay it to people. Now, their excuse, of course, is, well, it's not really currency creation because they're just it's just a short-term loan. But the problem is, is that this currency is staying out there because people aren't buying these treasuries back. So the Federal Reserve was injecting liquidity into the market. They were injecting physical dollars. I mean, it's digital cash, but the supply of cash that was in circulation, they're injecting it into the markets. And by the time the coronavirus crisis hit, or at least around the end of the year, they had injected somewhere north of $750 billion into the markets, just the repo markets. Then, of course, this other calamity known as the coronavirus hits. Now, since then, and of course, this was all labeled, this repo stuff was all labeled as quantitative easing. And all quantitative easing is, is the creation of money from nothing in exchange for assets. So the Federal Reserve goes shopping for things like government debt. And buys it and puts it on its balance sheet. There's a variety of reasons that they do this, but one of the more important reasons is to keep the interest rates on U.S. debt very low. This accomplishes two things. Number one, it keeps the interest rates low for the U.S. government. Now, why is that important? Well, because we have $24 trillion dollars in debt, ladies and gentlemen. Now, you all have credit cards. 
you have all experienced revolving credit card debt. Now, what does that mean? You pay interest on that debt month to month to month, okay? Imagine interest payments on $24 trillion. Well, if memory serves, we spend somewhere around four to $500 billion every year servicing our debt, whether it's paying back principal or pay, I think, or but that may just be the interest cost. Again, some of this is off the top of my head, so I apologize if this is not 100% correct. It is a massive amount of money. So the Federal Reserve ensures that the U.S. government can continue to borrow, one, by monetizing the debt, which means taking government debt, printing money, putting it out into the system. So again, when you issue credit, you create money. More money is now in the system when you create money. The second thing it accomplishes is it drives investors back into stocks or other equities like, you know, there's a variety of other, you know, products that you can get or maybe even real estate. But the point is it keeps you out of bonds because bonds are a safe haven. And they don't want you going to the safe haven because people don't look at the bond market as a strength of whether or not the economy is healthy or not. They look at the stock market. <clears throat> Pardon me. So they want to drive investors into equities. And this is, they openly say this. I mean, this isn't like, this isn't like me just guessing. I mean, like this is, they act, I mean, they tell you everything that they're doing for the most part, except for recently. So to give you an idea of how much money has been created. In 2008, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, the actual balance sheet of all their assets as they own, was about eh, $900 billion. Okay. Well, then we had all of quantitative easing. You had QE1, QE2, QE3. And at the height of QE3, their asset sheet had $4.4 trillion. So they went from eight the nine hundred billion to four point four trillion. So about what twenty five? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's a tremendous amount of money. They printed and monetized trillions of dollars. Now you can't see the balance sheet which is all publicly accessible information, I might add. The balance sheet kind of started to fall off. They called it quantitative tightening. And it, it went from four point, eh, about $4.45 trillion <clears throat> down to $3.8 trillion. And that was about, uh, it, it, hit its low, it hit its low peak in August 19th of 2019. And some of this coincided with the stock market, like the stock market topped in January of, of 2018. And it just, and it basically fell along with the Fed's balance sheet, but they swear there's, you know, there's no causation there. Now you can't see the chart, but ladies and gentlemen, after the repo crisis hit September of 2019, this thing went, it didn't go parabolic. It went vertical. It is almost a straight line. 
I mean, it's like an 85 degree line. They went from three point, say three point uh, three point seven five trillion in August of 2019. Three point seven five trillion. I know these. Num- I know numbers are tough on ra- on podcasts and radios. So just bear with me. Three point seven five trillion. As of April sixth, so ten days ago, their asset sheet is at nearly six point one trillion dollars. And I mean, when I say it's vertical, I mean it's a it's a it's a shuttle launch. It's a spaceship going into space. Three point seven five trillion. Six point one trillion dollars in the span of less than a year. Trillions and trillions of dollars have been printed by the Federal Reserve. That money doesn't just disappear. So, and there's all kinds of other things that are taking place. And it would really take me an astronomical amount of time to lay them all out for you. But the Federal Reserve is now purchasing assets across a wide variety of different areas. Previously, with quantitative easing, they were buying these more long term treasury bonds, but they would argue that they weren't at least recently, they weren't monetizing the debt because they claimed the treasury bonds were less than a year. So they were buying, you know, like two month, three month kind of bonds, things like that. Well, now they're buying them across a wide range of asset classes. So now they're doing 30 year, they're doing 10 year, they're doing five year, they're doing two year. Um, they're also going to be buying junk bonds if they haven't started already. It's They're buying Ladies and gentlemen, they're buying everything. They're buying mortgage-backed securities. Would you believe that the Federal Reserve is the largest single landowner in the world? They own so many mortgages and they own so many houses. They are the largest landowner in the world. It It is unprecedented what is taking place. So the intervention that's happening is on a scale that we've never seen before. Money printing is in full scale. What do you get when you get money printing? Eventually you get inflation. And then you get hyperinflation. Now you're going to find a whole lot of disagreements about what's going to happen in the future. Okay. And I'm not here to tell you that I know what's going to happen. I ha- I'm here to tell you what I am preparing for. Because there are two well, there's going to be more, but let's say let's let's focus on two possible outcomes. One outcome is that the economy roars back to life. Everybody gets put back to work and the party continues and we have the shortest bull market or sorry, I apologize. The shortest bear market in United States history of like 20 some odd days. And I miss out on some opportunities to buy stocks when they bottom doubt. And that's kind of a that's kind of a bummer. Or or we engage in the largest amount of money printing this country has ever seen. The economy appears to be reanimated much like a weekend at Bernie's. 
And the velocity of money, that is how fast money exchanges from one hand to the next, how fast money moves through the system. So there's a certain, like money has a velocity, you know, in terms of it coming into your bank account, how soon it's spent maybe at the gas station, how soon the gas station takes that money and buys snacks or they buy drinks or they pay employees and those people go out and buy. So money has a certain velocity. When velocity starts to pick up, and money starts to circulate faster, that's when you start to get inflation. Inflation can also be brought about by too many dollars chasing too few goods. For example, we've had inflation with hand sanitizer and medical-grade masks. We've had, you know, we've, we've seen inflation in a variety of different medical products. Why? Too many dollars chasing too few supplies. Supply and demand. Demand is up. Supplies are down. Price goes up. It's real easy. Real simple economics. But the point is, is that I'm preparing for hyperinflation. Now, we're not going to just roar right into hyperinflation. There's going to have to be a deflationary period. Now, why is that? Because... The Federal Reserve has made it very clear, going all the way back to Ben Bernanke, they have made it clear since the early 2000s that they will never allow deflation to happen again. Why? Remember what I said at the beginning of the podcast. We have a debt-based society. In order for the economy to grow, you have to accumulate more debt. Deflation is often the period when debts are handled. They're defaulted on, they're paid off, they're liquidated, whatever it may be. So if the Federal Reserve is never going to allow deflation to happen again, what are they going to do? They're going to endlessly print money. Endlessly print money. There will be soon no limit to what the Federal Reserve will buy. They will buy everything. They will buy credit card debt. They will buy student loan debt. They will buy corporate debt. They will buy government debt. They'll buy everything. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, eventually they're going to buy stocks. Mark my words. They are going to buy stocks. And when the Federal Reserve can print an endless amount of money and purchase things with it, what do you think that does to the price of those assets? If you had a house that was valued at $200,000 and you knew the federal government was, gonna, was buying up homes in your area and the chances are very, very good they're going to buy your house. And if you know that they really don't care how much the house costs because the money's not real. The money was printed. It was created by money. I mean, currency. I'm really trying hard because there is a fundamental difference between currency and money. But when I say I'm talking about dollars. So if they don't care how much it costs in dollars, what, are the, what, are you do, what is that going to do to the prices? Well, you're going to charge more. Because when the consumer doesn't care what the price of something is, the prices of that item tend to go up. So. The Federal Reserve is distorting all of these markets 
the bond markets, the corporate, corporate, you know, the corporate bond markets, all these markets are being distorted because they're just buying at whatever price this stuff is. They don't care how much it costs. What do you think that's going to happen with stocks? So they basically end up pushing out all of the retail investors who can't afford this stuff anymore. Now I'm getting a little far into the woods here. But I hope you can understand that what you're witnessing behind the scenes is unlike anything we have ever seen in this country's history, ever. The amount of money that the Federal Reserve has already exceeded almost all of the QEs combined. And it's just been since September. And of course, it really started to pick up towards the end of the year. All before the coronavirus even became a thing. So I just, again, emphasize that you do your homework. Now, I want to try and sort of close out this podcast by talking about how this impacts you. Because a lot of this probably can seem like it's far-fetched in terms of it really reaching out and touching you. The important thing to understand is that there were changes made to banking legislation after 2008. You've all heard about the government bailouts. But have you heard about the bank bail-ins? This, ladies and gentlemen, is one area in particular that, that threatens the very economic freedom and, and security of nearly every American in this country. Because everybody keeps their money in the bank. Everybody keeps their money in the bank. This is how it's done. You have to. I mean, if you think about it, nearly every single transaction that you engage in, there is a middleman between you and the person that you're paying. And of course, this is by design. It's done out of a matter of convenience. When you use a credit card or a debit card, or even if you write a check, there is a corporation standing between you and the person that you're paying. So you keep your money in the bank. You use credit cards. Pretty, pretty self-explanatory. Well, one of the ways that the banks and the government have engineered a safety mechanism in order to prevent the banks from needing a taxpayer bailout in the event that they fail again, they have legalized a bail-in. Now, what does this mean? It means in the event that banks have a crisis of liquidity, meaning they don't have any cash, the banks are authorized to seize your deposits and to use them to reliquify the bank. And essentially, you are given, at worst, you're given nothing. At best, you might get your money back from the FDIC, but that's assuming the FDIC is still solvent at that time. Um, somewhere right in the middle, you might just get issued bank stock because that's happened before. This has happened most notably. It's been sort of tested in Cyprus and in Greece. Greece, as an example, had a massive banking crisis that took place, uh, I think, in 2013. The Greek government had 
gotten into an unprecedented amount of debt compared to GDP. Mm, memory serves, it's about 150%, but it, I could be wrong about that. So the difference between Greece and the United States is that Greece can't print their own cash because they use the euro. And because the European Union is a collection of countries, the European central banks don't just print money because the Greeks need cash. So they had an unprecedented amount of debt. Their economy wasn't doing well. And they were out of money. So there was a major banking crisis and the banks started to fail. And suddenly people couldn't get their money out. Now, this is something that I, this is sort of the first stop. We are all accustomed to believing that we can get access to our assets and our cash at any time. This includes the stock market, the bond market, real estate. People keep their money in these institutions. I, I know people who still right now have a tremendous amount of assets that they could, if they wanted to, liquefy and pull out if they wanted to. If you're like me, you might have a 401k in the stock market and we're stuck. We're stuck. You can't get your money out of the system. Now, imagine 401k, but just with everything else. And by that, what I mean, imagine if you couldn't get anything out of the system. You say, but, oh, but, but I'll, you know, I've got all this money in stocks, but you can't get it out. So it doesn't matter. It's just digits on a screen. Imagine if the same thing happened to your bank account. Imagine if you had money in the bank, but you could not get access to it. Look at what's going on right now. Banks are closed. Their lobbies are closed. It's by appointment only. I had a family member that had a, uh, had like a money market fund or a CD that they were wanting to sell. The bank's like, hmm, can't do that over the phone. You got to come into our lobby. Oh, by the way, our lobby's closed. You have to make an appointment. Well, I mean, what if, what if you needed that money now? What if that CD was in jeopardy? Well, you might not get it out. Now, fortunately, they were able to make an appointment and fortunately they were able to retrieve their money. But man, I'll tell you, when you suddenly can't get access to your funds, the situation gets real, real. This is what happened in Cyprus and Greece, where all of a sudden there were limits placed on the amount of money that you can pull out of ATMs. Have you potentially heard the same thing happening here in the United States? I have. I've heard about banks in New York that are running out of $100 bills. I've heard about banks that were just simply refusing to allow large cash withdrawals. If you were trying to take out more than $10,000 in cash, the answer was no. The FDIC making these really bizarre videos where they're telling people, please do not take your money out of the banking system. Are you ready to have your mind blown? Because if you've listened this long, I hope that this is worth your time. This is an article from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York from the horse's mouth on a publication called Liberty Street Economics at the NewYorkFed.org. This is penned by, uh, I'm going to get these names wrong and I want to make sure I get this information right. Uh, Halem Anderson, I believe, 
And Halem Anderson is, if you want, is, I believe, a member of the FDIC. She is a senior financial economist for the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Did you know that the FDIC only has enough money to cover 2% of all funds that are in the banking system? 2%, ladies and gentlemen, 2% of all deposits in United States banks. That's all the FDIC can insure. That means 98% of you, if every bank in America failed, 98% of you out there would get nothing. And of course, they'd have to go to Congress for more, getting more money. And that's assuming the government actually had more money to give. So uh, I believe it's Halem Anderson. And then there's Adam Copeland, who is part of the Federal Reserve. Adam Copeland is not a retired wrestler. Uh, bear with me, folks. This is an amateur show. And Adam Copeland is the assistant vice president at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Not insignificant people. The title, and this is an April 2nd, 2020 article. This is very, very recent. The title of the article is The Value of Opacity in a Banking Crisis. Uh, it says, during moments of heightened economic uncertainty, authorities often need to decide on how much information to disclose. For example, during crisis periods, we often observe regulators limiting access to bank-level information with the goal of restoring the public's confidence in banks. Thus, information management often plays a central role in ending a financial crisis. Despite the perceived importance of managing information about individual banks during a financial crisis, we are not aware of any empirical work that quantifies the effect of such policies. In this blog post, we highlight results from our recent working paper demonstrating that in a crisis, a pay attention, this is critical. In a crisis, a policy of suppressing information about banks' balance sheets has a significant and positive effect on deposits. What they mean is, is that they have discovered a correlation between suppressing information about how healthy a bank is and that suppressing information about a potential bank's unhealthy status has a positive effect on deposits, meaning that people are more likely to put their money in a bank if they do not know that that bank is unhealthy. Not that the bank is insolvent, but that maybe the bank is in danger of failing. This is the FDIC and the Federal Reserve telling you that they see validity in the practice of withholding information about a bank that is in danger of failing so that you are not reluctant to keep your money in the bank. Let's keep going. The next section is why might withholding information about banks be helpful? Gosh, I ask myself that question all the time. During normal times, regulators have long recognized that disclosure is an important tool that helps the market to discipline banks. Indeed, 
the free banking era, the United States has required banks to report summary statistics of their balance sheets on a periodic basis through call reports. In a crisis, however, theory predicts that undesirable outcomes can occur if the publication of balance sheet information induces runs on solvent banks. Undesirable outcomes in that you decide you no longer want to keep your cash in said in, in said bank. As a result, it may be desirable for regulators to suspend the publication of bank-specific information during a crisis so as to take banks or to make banks more opaque to depositors. Such a policy action prevents depositors from being able to distinguish between banks with stronger and weaker balance sheets, resulting or reducing the chance that depositors will run on a weak but still solvent bank. An inefficient type of bank run. (laughs) This stuff is just so, so unbelievable. I had no idea that there was efficient and inefficient bank runs, ladies and gentlemen. You know what an inefficient bank run is? The one where I don't get all my money out. So I, I, I cannot, like, I read this article and I got, I got physically ill. I hope you can appreciate the seriousness of this. You have a ranking member of the FDIC and a ranking member of the New York Fed who are telling you this is in black and white on the internet, on their website for you to see with their names on it. That they feel in a crisis, it is more important to not allow depositors to get wind of the fact that their bank that they hold their money in, their money that they that they trade for their own labor, the money that provides shelter for their family, food for their family, pays the bills, provides investments, your cash, the FDIC and the Federal Reserve feel that it is more important that you not know whether or not your bank is insolvent or more more, more to the point that your bank's balance sheet is very weak. So they're, they're thinking about banks that all of a sudden show weakness where failure is a possibility and that a bank run would essentially do in the bank. So they feel it is more important that the banks not tell you that they are weak because it will give you the confidence to continue to put your money in said bank. They would rather risk the bank being insolvent and them taking your money, leaving you with nothing than allowing a weak bank to fail because people become aware of it and make the conscious choice to pull their money out. These people do not care about you. They do not care about me. They don't care about your family. They don't care about your children. They only care about the survival of their own industry and, of course, the enrichment of themselves and those people that they deem friends. Let's go just a little bit longer in this article so I can cement this in your mind. 
It says, how can we measure the value of increasing opacity? What they mean by opacity is essentially, I believe, transparency, where you can't quite see what's happening. During the bank panics of the Great Depression, policymakers tried a variety of measures to mitigate bank runs. In New York during this time, state-level and national-level regulators implemented different policies with regard to publishing bank balance sheet data. To convince panic-stricken households, that's in quote, in New York that their deposits would remain liquid and safe, the New York State bank regulators suppressed bank-specific information by not collecting and mandating the publication of call report data in 1933 and 34. They did this for those institutions under its oversight banks with a state charter. This policy decision effectively ended the public's ability to observe the balance sheets of state charter banks for two years. In contrast, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency of the OCC collected and mandated the publication of balance sheet statistics for banks under its oversight, which is banks with a national charter. Because state charter and national charter banks operated side by side in New York, this difference in households' ability to observe a bank's balance sheet provides a unique opportunity to measure the impact of information suppression on depositors' willingness to run on banks. So essentially, they had an experiment. I don't think it was planned this way, but it worked out this way where they were able to suppress state chartered banks, those banks that only operated within that state. And it sounds like banks that operate on a national level, which basically ran side by side, they were able to see what the difference was in behavior of the public putting their deposits in the banks. A lot of this is additional analysis where they basically kind of go over the case and, and sort of opine about whether or not this is actually a legitimate situation. The bottom line is this, that the FDIC and the Federal Reserve actually believe that it is better to not so much lie to you, but it's lying through omission. They are going to restrict your access to certain pieces of information, namely call reports, so that people cannot tell whether or not banks are potentially weak with their balance sheets. It's the exact same thing that's taking place right now with the repo market. Now, it's nothing new in the repo market there. As far as I know, their publishing standards for who is getting what repos haven't changed. But the point is, is that if there was a bank that suddenly had a liquidity crunch, which caused interest rates in the market to spike, you won't know for two years, well, well after the dust is settled on whatever actually would take place. Your money is not safe in the banks. Now, the truth is it's never been safe, but it's even more unsafe. Now I have so many people where I've had conversations about this and I get the same response every time, which is, but my FDIC. Well, I hope that having it right from the horse's mouth, helps you understand the truth. Not only does the FDIC not have enough money to cover 98% of deposits in United States banks, but they actually think that it's okay to lie to you through omission about whether or not your bank might actually be in a weakened state so that you don't take your money out of the bank. 
this is unbelievable to me. And if this does not shock you, if this does not scare you, if this does not make you fearful of your cash being in the banking system, I don't really know what else will do it. Now, let's talk a little bit again about the future. I've had this argument with family members. I've had this argument with friends. And I'm not here to tell you that I know what will happen, plain and simple. But there's this belief that the market is just going to bounce back and everything's going to be fine. Again, it's normalcy bias. Here's one, if there was one important fact that I can give you. And I think to myself, what would I say to my family if I was given a soapbox and able to make my case? What, I guess the thing I would start out with is what has changed in the last month? Because we saw the market bottom and then we've seen it bounce up by 20%. What's changed in the last month, ladies and gentlemen? Are businesses still shuttered and closed? Are airlines seeing a 90% reduction in air flight and in, in, in ticket sales and flights? Are your kids still home from school? Are some of you still out of a job? Are some of you working for businesses that are still closed or closed to the public? Are some of you still locked in your homes? What's changed in the last month? Aside from the fact that the Federal Reserve is printing money at an unprecedented rate and handing it out like it's like they're Santa Claus on Christmas Eve. That's it. That's all that's changed. The only thing that's changed is that the Federal Reserve is buying everything except stocks. Otherwise, the economy is still shut down. Main Street is still shut down. Oil is, there's so much oil that they're running out of places to store it. Prices of oil have just cratered. We have the U.S. shale oil industry that is on the verge of mass bankruptcy because they have to have oil above 50 or $55 a barrel before they have any prayer of becoming profitable. But the demand for oil has, of course, cratered because no one's leaving their homes. No one's traveling. No one's driving to work. I haven't gotten gas in a month. And I'm normally filling up every two to three days. So my point is, what has changed that would cause the markets to go up? Why are why do people think that corporations are worth more than they actually are. And all of a sudden now, of course, it's earnings season for Q1 and the earnings are coming in. They're all trash. We all knew they'd be trash. But suddenly unemployment numbers don't matter. You had had a record 3 million people file for unemployment the first week that we saw a massive spike. The next week, six and a half million people 10 million people over the course of two weeks reporting uh, reporting unemployment. 
If you look at the unemployment chart since 2008, at the very end of the chart, there is a vertical line that is beyond anything we've ever seen, including 2008. We are looking at potentially 10 to 15% unemployment right now when we were at 3.5%, allegedly. Those numbers are fake, but I digress. Point being, nothing's changed, ladies and gentlemen, so why is the market going up? Now, more importantly, you might be surprised to know that since 2008, the overwhelmingly largest single buyer of stocks were stock buybacks. Corporations buying back their own stock. Now, why on God's green earth would companies buy their own stock back? A couple of reasons. Number one, by reducing the number of shares that they have out in the market, their price naturally will go up. Secondly, it distorts corporate earnings because one of the major metrics, of course, is earnings per share. That's one of the things that people look at to determine whether or not a company is profitable. It's a way for companies to sort of fake the data by making their earnings per share look like it's going up when in fact it's not, but it's just because they've reduced the number of shares that are out in the market. Another very important reason why stocks or why corporations would buy their stock is because the executives will sell into those stock buybacks. Executives within all these major corporations are predominantly paid with stock. They receive either no salary or they receive a, well, a modest salary compared to the amount of stocks that that they're granted. But the bottom line is, is that you will see executives essentially sell into the stock buyback. So you're in the position of taking company money and the company buying your stock from you at whatever the current going market rate is. So if you're an executive, you want to sell a ton of stock and you don't either want to sell it little pieces at the time at a time to avoid distorting the market. Or you are concerned that there's not actually enough buyers, there's not enough volume in order to facilitate a sell, then you get the company to buy a bunch of stock and you just sell into it. But the bottom line is, these companies are not buying back their stock anymore. The market that we've had, the rally that we have had for the last 10 years was fake. It was built upon stock buybacks, and passive investing, passive investing in things like 401ks, pension plans, you know, people buying stock regularly through things like like apps like Robinhood or Acorns. Passive investing, but I mean, even then, it, passive investing pales in comparison to the amount of money that was spent on stock buybacks by corporations, and they're not buying anymore. One, because it's, you know, the market continues to go down. They're throwing money away, which I argue that they're throwing money away as it was. But it's also becoming socially unacceptable because corporations like Boeing and the airlines that have all engaged in stock buybacks suddenly are begging Uncle Sam for a bailout. 
So people are, are, of course, asking the correct question, which is why are we bailing out corporations that basically, well, I think in the case of Delta Airlines, I saw that Delta Airlines had a valuation of around $4 billion and they have spent in the last 10 years, at least $12 billion on stock buybacks. I don't know how you spend three times the valuation of your company in stock buybacks, but I guess that's what you get when stocks are valued, you know, something to the tune of like 19 times on average, what the actual value of the company is worth. That's how overvalued the stock market is. It's a trap. It's a trap, ladies and gentlemen. And people can argue with me until they're blue in the face about how it's a money-making opportunity. Yes, it, it is. It's a freaking casino. There is nothing free market in the stock market or the bond market or ETFs or any of this garbage. It is all a trap. You have people who are able to leverage a tremendous amount of money and who are able to manipulate the system or have access to insider information and they use it to their advantage to transmit wealth from one person to another. Something I'm very important to understand. Wealth is a lot like energy. It's not created or destroyed. It is simply transferred. And what we're witnessing right now, in my opinion, is one of the single largest wealth transfers in human history. We are going to see income disparity like this world has never seen before, at least in this country. Where, I mean, I'll just close this. I'll close this podcast out by just kind of offering my own opinion on where I think things are going and what's happening. As best as I can tell, financial insiders, people at the Federal Reserve, at the FDIC, and some echelons of the U.S. government, have recognized that the dollar as we know it, as it currently exists as a fiat currency, meaning it's not backed by anything, it is simply created by a matter of government decree, that the dollar as we know it is finished. It's finished. Meaning that it is dying and it is near death. They know the dollar is dead. They know the dollar is finished. And so what they are doing is they are taking advantage of this crisis as an excuse to print an unprecedented amount of cash in order to take advantage of what little spending power it has left and to set themselves up for wealth preservation for the very distant future. Meanwhile, the rest of us are facing something between the Weimar Republic in Germany to Venezuela, to Zimbabwe, to Argentina, where eventually we are going to wake up one morning and the dollar is going to be worth absolutely nothing. Where a loaf of bread is going to be 50 bucks or a hundred bucks. Where the price of gold is at 10,000, 50,000, a hundred thousand an ounce. This is what I think our future holds. Because there is no way out of this situation. 
the only way to fix the problems that we have now is for the Federal Reserve to take its foot off the gas, to step out of the way, and to allow the rules of economics to function as they do, which means that debt is defaulted on or liquidated, bankruptcies happen, banks fail, and massive, massive deflation takes place in the economy. As people are relieved of their debt, as you know, debts are settled one way or the other, then eventually the economy will start to recover. But most importantly, then interest rates will start to skyrocket. Suddenly home prices collapse, automotive prices collapse, personal credit, the ability to get personal credit goes away. Taking out, you know, unsecured debt through credit cards becomes very, very expensive. I mean, you know, we have almost, you know, 20 to 22% interest rates. Imagine, I don't know, imagine 50% APR on your, on your credit cards. Something like astronomical because the banks aren't making any money. I mean, I know it's all like boo-hoo for the banks. I get it. But their, their opportunities to make money are very limited right now. Credit cards are one way they're doing that. But could you imagine being in an unsecured amount of credit? Imagine if you had $15,000, $25,000 in credit and all of a sudden your annual APR for your credit card went from 18 to 22 to 25% and is now somewhere, you know, 30, 35, 40%. There's be no way that you could get out of that debt. There's be, there'll be no way you could actually get out of that debt. And so there'd just be massive defaults all over the place. But we would recover. Things would restart again as, the, as we would get back to honest money. Interest rates would have to go back up. Like again, which means housing prices would come crashing down. Automotive costs would come crashing down. You know, if you had to pay, if you were back in a 10 or 15 or 18% automotive interest loan, hell, even 10%, there would be no more $60,000, $70,000 trucks. Like, it just, it, no way. Just It just can't happen. But that's not what's going to take place. What I mean by that is that the Fed is not going to step out of the way. The Fed is going to continue to do everything it possibly can to not allow us to go into a deflationary situation. Now, the market's going to deflate. And the reason why it's going to deflate is because the velocity of money has come to an almost standstill. Nobody is spending. I'm not spending. I mean, I'm buying food and essentials, but I'm saving as much as I can. Because I don't know what's going to happen in three months or six months or a year. I don't know. Am I still going to have a job? I don't know what the economic situation is going to be. I'm not going out and buying big screen TVs or new computers or cars or anything like that. So the velocity of money has decreased tremendously. So it doesn't matter how much physical currency you pump into the system. If it's not being spent, it doesn't matter. So you're going to see deflation no matter what. But then it's on the other side that things actually make a turnaround because eventually that money is going to get broken loose. And when the money velocity picks up, inflation will rise. 
and it's going to rise so fast that you're not that the Federal Reserve is not going to be able to catch it because meanwhile they are going to be throwing everything they possibly can at the economy. Because even when the velocity is low and the economy is deflating, they're going to continue to pump and pump and pump and pump. They're going to overdo it. They're not going to get it just right. They are going to massively overdo it. And by the time velocity picks up, by the time the economy starts to come back to life, it'll be too late. They will not be able to undo the damage that they have done. And you're going to see velocity pick up. You're going to see prices rise as cash is just changing hands so rapidly. And then that's when it's all going to come to an end. Where the currency is going to deteriorate and it's going to collapse. And as the, as the currency starts to continue to deteriorate, you're going to see a foreign reaction, which is suddenly people, the, the, all the people overseas who hold dollars are going to decide that they don't want to be in dollars anymore because the dollar is losing value. So they are instead going to trade their dollars for assets or for stuff. They're going to buy American goods. They're going to do anything they can to trade those dollars for something that they can actually get money out of. And you're going to see a flood of dollars come back into the United States and it's going to all be over. It'll all happen. There'll be too much momentum behind it. And it's going to be a disaster. It is going to be a total disaster because we're going to think that the worst is already over. We're going to think, oh my gosh, this is the greatest depression. And then we're going to come out of it and then we're going to get crushed. And no one is going to see it coming. The average person on the street is not going to see it coming. They're going to lose everything. And the reason why is because they don't, they're not like the wealthy. They don't have their money in assets. They don't have their money in real estate, precious metals, stocks, bonds. They deal in cash. So when that cash's value suddenly evaporates, they've got nothing. Nothing. Now, again, I don't know the future. I'm not saying that this is certain. I am saying from my standpoint, it's looking pretty unavoidable when it happens. I don't know. It could happen a year from now. It could happen six months from now. It could happen 10 years from now, but the trajectory that we are on, this is typically how previous countries have failed. This is, and, and it's not just the United States that is doing this. You're seeing central banks all across the world that are manipulating their currency in a very similar fashion. And it seems very coordinated in a way to, as to not give anybody awareness that this is what's taking place. I don't think the central banks want any one country to get too far ahead because it could potentially trigger the real meltdown. So they all devalue their currency in unison because then when you say, oh, look, the dollar, the dollar is up. The dollar index is up. 
Well, the dollar index is just simply the dollar being compared against a basket of other fiat currencies. So if all the fiat currencies are devalued at roughly the same rate, the dollar index doesn't really fluctuate all that much. As they slowly move the pen walls into place, you never notice that you're being walled in until it's too late. That's my spiel, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know if it's helpful or not. If you have made it this far in the podcast, thank you very much for your time. I do truly appreciate it. I hope you found this to be educational. Again, I highly encourage you to do your homework. As always, stay safe, healthy, and we'll talk to you next time.